Paul writes this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. Please be seated. In our social media age, we have all grown accustomed to people presenting us with a curated version of their lives. Good hair, perfect skin, attractive angles, fun adventures, luxury experiences, expensive food, immaculate homes, happy families, cute pets, smiling faces. They all tend to dominate our feeds. But there's still a a nagging sense in most of our minds that what we see on our phones is not reality. And that's why hashtags like maybe no filter or apps like Be Real, which dictates that everyone take a, a picture uh, of their real life at the same random time each day. That's why those things are so popular. They're popular because while well, we all have a tendency to admire the seemingly picture-perfect lives that are presented to us, we actually crave people who are just real. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Instagram account called Humans of New York took off. Unlike most of the stuff we see on social media, Humans of New York present real stories of New Yorkers and others around the world. And the account often provides very raw descriptions of the, of the difficulties and disappointments that people have experienced in their lives. And while it is heartbreaking sometimes to read of the poor decisions and circumstances that occur, that kind of honesty is compelling. We like to admire the best of people, but we resonate much more with the honest reality of people. Because we know in our own lives it's impossible to curate out all the difficulties and struggles and and weaknesses that we face. And that's why today's passage is one that has and should strike a chord in the hearts of many. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12-17, through 17, Paul, Paul sheds the great apostle and caring shepherd and tireless missionary hashtags to give us a, a very real account of his life. It is a compelling and captivating summary of what he's been through And he does this at the opening of his letter to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus because he wants to get real about the gospel. 
We learned last time in the opening section of this letter that there were false teachers threatening the church. They were speculating about God's Word. They were trying to teach God's law, but they were twisting it. Their message was not producing the love that the Gospel was meant to produce. And so Paul reminded Timothy of the need to deal with these people. And in our passage today, he he goes on to clarify what the true Gospel is and how it should work in the life of a disciple of Christ. In this uncurated testimony, we find Paul humbly admitting his own heinous sin. But he also readily extols God's abundant grace. And and these verses reveal to us four aspects of God's grace that must be embraced against the false teaching of this world. Understanding these four aspects of grace should not only help us to understand the beauty of the gospel that we have been entrusted with as followers of Christ. But understanding these aspects of God's grace should also encourage us to look honestly at our own lives and and find great joy, not in curating fleeting moments of happiness for others to admire, but in recognizing the tremendous grace that God provides. Well, first we find in verses 12 through 14 that God's grace is unconditional. The first aspect of God's grace for us to recognize is that His grace is unconditional. After having stated in verse 11 that He was entrusted with the gospel, Paul goes on in verse 12 to thank Jesus for giving Him strength as He appointed Him to ministry. Notice that Paul immediately identifies the source of his grace in the Lord and not in himself. And he recalls the past strengthening work of Jesus in his life. He's probably thinking of his initial conversion on the road to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him and he was eventually filled with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Paul writes that Jesus judged him faithful. Oh, What does he mean by that? It's not that Paul was inherently faithful or even that he had somehow proved himself faithful. Again, Paul is likely talking about his conversion and his initial calling into service of the Lord. So he hadn't yet time, had any time to prove his loyalty to Christ yet. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus considered Paul worthy of trust in his conversion, even though he hadn't proven anything yet. Augustine has said, God does not choose anyone who is worthy, but in choosing him, renders him worthy. And that is the the power of God's grace in our lives. It irresistibly works to not only save us, but also bring our faith to completion. The one who begins a good work in us will bring it to completion. As Paul writes to Timothy, he's saying, My my ministry thus far is a demonstration of the effectiveness of God's grace in my life. And I'm so thankful that before I even did anything for him, he considered me faithful as he called me into his service. Paul treasured the service that he had been called into by the Lord. And I think it's good for us to ask ourselves, are we thankful for the opportunities that God has given us to serve Him? 
Are we thankful for those opportunities? I know that sometimes serving Him in the church, in a certain ministry, can be trying. It takes work and time to be a, a faithful small group leader. It takes effort to plan an event for the church. It requires sacrifice to, to teach children. It can be tiring to bear the burdens of another brother or sister who is struggling with something in their lives. But do you realize, like Paul, that God has given you the strength that you need for the tasks that He has given you to do? Do you praise Him for the situations that God has placed you in and the gifts that He has given you to serve Him, even when it's hard or when you face roadblocks? Well, maybe you're at a a time right now in your life where you're just feeling a little bit drained. You're like, oh man, I got to do that for the Lord. It's not like I get to do that, but I got to do that. This verse here reminds us that it is a sweet privilege to serve the Lord in whatever he has, he has entrusted us to do for him. And Paul says, I thank God that he has strengthened me for this work. God has strengthened you as well. Paul was thankful for this privilege he had been given to be entrusted with the gospel message. Now, now how could Paul have that kind of attitude? Why was he so thankful. Well, it's because he deeply understood that the grace God had shown him was not deserved in the least. Paul was not worthy of being judged faithful and appointed to the service of Christ Jesus. Look at what he writes in verse 13. He writes, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. And he's not exaggerating. In Acts 26, specifically verses 9 through 11, Luke records Paul's own words about his past life. Paul said of his pre-Christian life, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was a a blasphemer in the sense that he opposed the name of Jesus. He rejected Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. Paul was a persecutor of the early church. He locked up Christians. He voted to put them to death. And he was an insolent opponent because he he did all this in a rage of fury. There is an increasing degree of seriousness to Paul's description of himself in this verse. It's like he's saying, I not only spoke against Jesus, but this affected how I I acted. I persecuted those who loved him, and I didn't even do that with kindness. I did that violently. But, he writes, I received mercy. It's not that Paul went out to go get mercy. He was shown mercy. He received mercy from the Lord. Mercy is is really the alleviation of misery. It's the compassion of God that frees us from the weight of our sin. And this mercy wasn't something that Paul earned. It wasn't because of his resume. It was because of the unconditional love of God. And, And Paul notes at the end of verse 13 that he had received this mercy because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, Paul isn't giving an excuse for his actions here. 
He's simply explaining the fact that he thought he was serving God. Before becoming a Christian, he thought persecuting Christians was something that God was actually pleased with. Paul's highlighting a distinction in the way that he sinned. He he seems to be making the same distinction God made in the Old Testament regarding unintentional sin and intentional or high-handed sin. You can read about this in places like Numbers 15. Uh, Numbers 15, 29 states, You you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. To be clear, Paul was still guilty of sin in his ignorance. He still blasphemed the name of the Son of God, and he broke the commandment to love his neighbor through his violent persecutions. But I think Paul makes a special note of his ignorance here because he's writing to Timothy, and he's writing to a church dealing with false teachers. And I think he's making a distinction between his sin and the sin of those leading others astray in the church. And and Paul is saying that his sin was done when he was ignorant of the goodness of the gospel of Christ. But when he tasted the glories of the good news, when, when Jesus appeared to him, he changed. On the other hand, the false teachers who were in the church and who seemingly understood that Jesus was the Messiah, they continued to sin. And so their sin was of the high-handed kind. They had been exposed to and perhaps even accepted the truth of the gospel at some point. But they still perverted it. And they misled others out of their pride. And so the consequences of their sin were much to be feared. It's not that they couldn't be forgiven. But Paul is almost giving them a, a warning here. Don't presume upon God's mercy. Despite his past, Paul had eagerly received that mercy from God. And though totally unqualified, he experienced the overflowing grace of the Lord, which resulted in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In verse 14, we see that God's grace is abundant. John Bunyan, the author of uh, Pilgrim's Progress, took the title of his autobiography from this verse. It's called Grace Abounding to the chief of sinners. Like Paul, he understood the endless depth of God's grace. It is like a waterfall that that keeps on overflowing. There is an infinite supply of it in him. If if all of creation were to respond to, to God's initiative and receive his grace, we wouldn't make a dent in his supply. There is never a drought when it comes to God's grace. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul wrote... Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We, we cannot outsin the grace of God. It's able to overpower all the terrible deeds of the worst sinners. And, and it is such a magnificent blessing because it doesn't just deal with our sin. God's grace brings about faith and love. It overcomes our unbelief. It gives us faith. And it overpowers the hatred in our hearts by replacing it with love. This is the unconditional grace of God. It is a grace that overcomes our sinful past and it places us on a new trajectory in life. And we need to first recognize that there is nothing that we did to deserve it. 
If we fail to acknowledge the unconditional nature of God's grace, we will try to work for it like the false teachers in Ephesus or the rest of the religions of this world. This is the first aspect of God's grace that we have to embrace in order to uphold the gospel in this world full of false teaching. Second, we see that God's grace isn't just unconditional, it's also available. God's grace is unconditional, but it's also available. Paul's, Paul writes in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy. He often uses this phrase in the pastoral epistles to reaffirm and emphasize the importance of certain statements. And again, against the backdrop of false teaching, Paul is pointing out what is actually true. He also writes that this saying is deserving of full acceptance. The word full there indicates that this saying should be accepted by everyone. Now, what is the saying that is so important? Well, it's that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the gospel in brief. It speaks of Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah who came to save. And though it doesn't explicitly say so, it, it assumes his preexistence and his divinity and his incarnation. The Son of God came into the world of sinful humanity and he came in order to save sinners. He came to bring atonement for our sins through his life and his death and his resurrection. And this statement echoes Jesus' own words. Jesus said in Mark 2.17, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And in Luke 19.10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is a statement worthy of a full acceptance. And at the end of verse 15, Paul identifies himself as one of those sinners. He calls himself the foremost sinner. Now, we know that there were others who probably sinned more than Paul. But from his perspective, as a, as a former blasphemer and a violent persecutor of God's people, Paul believed that he was just the worst. He's given an honest assessment of himself. And even though it might strike modern years today as a bit extreme, he has a, he has a healthy view of himself. He is not preaching to himself the gospel of self-esteem. He, he doesn't have a false sense of his, of his own goodness. He's not like the Pharisee whom Jesus described in Luke 18.10 who prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And Paul is not self-deceived. But he also isn't wallowing in pity or, or self-despair. He's like the tax collector in Jesus' parable who understood his sinfulness yet still called out to the Lord for help. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Paul had a proper and accurate view of himself. Uh, there has been a trend today to talk about and focus on our mental health as individuals. This has been positive in many ways. It is important to talk about our emotional and our psychological and social well-being especially when we aren't doing well. Mental health is, is such a serious issue today because of the immense burden we put on ourselves to be good and to meet the expectations of others. All those curated lives on social media only contribute to the pressure that we feel to perform, the pressure that we feel to be like someone else. 
And talking about those burdens and our insufficiency is a helpful and often necessary first step. But the ultimate answer to the problem of poor mental health is not just finding a way to cope with the issues we face through exercise or mindfulness or finding a hobby that makes us happy or eating right or getting more sleep or discovering strategies for getting out of the ruts in our lives. I'm, I'm not trying to put any of those things down. They are often needed in our lives. But we can't settle for just good mental health. What we ultimately need, what all of us need, is gospel health. As believers, we should be asking each other, how is your your gospel health doing right now? And that kind of health only comes when we recognize that we are bad and that we aren't doing well. I think if Paul talked to some professionals today and said, you know, I'm a blasphemer and persecutor. I'm the worst of all people. He might get someone who would listen to him and say, tell me more about that. Why do you feel that way? Let's look at all the positives in your life. Let's come up with a plan. Let's strategize on some ways to care for yourself. And again, let me, let me emphasize, those things are not wrong in themselves, but, but they aren't enough. Right? They might get Paul through the next day or the next week. But those strategies would never alleviate the burden that Paul felt for rejecting God, for hurting people, for sending people to death. That's why Paul needed the grace of the gospel. The great hope of the gospel is that Christ came into this world to save sinners and to free us from all of those burdens that we place on ourselves. Worldly strategies, can, can, they can keep us going for a time, but they cannot give us the freedom and lasting hope that the gospel can. As a church, we need to be the listening ear to the world. We need to be a listening ear to other brothers and sisters. We need to say more of, tell me more about that. Why do you feel that way? We need to notice and listen to the struggles that others are going through, but we also need to remember to point people to the only hope that can bring holistic health. Paul achieved lasting mental health. He achieved gospel health when he realized that he was a wretched sinner before God and he let God remove that burden of sin for him through Christ. The gospel is a universal call for salvation. The truth that Jesus came into the world to save sinners is meant to be accepted by everyone. It is a statement worthy of full acceptance. It's not a confusing message that you need to speculate about or some kind of secret code to figure out. You you don't need to pay a professional to tell you about it. It's a simple story of the overflowing, abundant love of God for his people and his glory. It is a wonderful tale of redemption that is available to all, but it needs to be individually received and accepted. The availability of God's grace is the second aspect of that grace that we need to understand. God's grace in salvation is meant to be accepted by everyone. It is the solution to the ills of this world. God's grace is unconditional. It is available. And in verse 16, we see that it's also purposeful. God's grace is purposeful. Again, Paul mentions that he received mercy from God. And and he tells us that it was for a reason. It was for a purpose. What was that purpose? Paul writes that in me, 
as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. The Lord saved one of the chief enemies of the early church so that his perfect patience might be put on display. Paul's testimony reveals that God is willing and able to save even the fiercest enemies of the gospel. God used Paul's life story to shine forth the patience of Christ so that he might receive glory. Notice that the purpose of God's saving grace is, is first his own glory. He saves us for himself. He saves us so that he will receive the honor that is rightly due his name. But he also shows us grace for us. He gives to those who believe in him the unmatched gift of eternal life. Don't underestimate your own testimony and how God can use it to glorify himself and bring others to eternal life. One of the things I love at our church is how we regularly get to hear testimonies of God's grace in the lives of members of our church at Sunday evening fellowship. A few weeks ago, Jacob Sai gave his testimony, and he began by saying something along the lines of, I never thought my testimony was, was anything special. But I realized that every time God saves someone, it's a miracle. And he was so right. right? Every saved soul is a testimony of God's unfathomable patience. If you're a, mis- if you're a Christian, don't miscalculate how much testifying of God's grace in your life can bring him glory and perhaps even rescue others from an eternity apart from him in hell. God has been gracious to you for a purpose. Yes, it was to give you eternal life, but it was also so that his goodness and and kindness and patience might be put on display and others might also give him glory and receive life themselves. So, So find ways to talk about how God has worked in your life. Not just ways to talk about yourself. Everyone likes to talk about themselves. But find ways to talk about how God has worked in your life. Talk about how you were saved, how Jesus has changed you, what he has been teaching you and showing you recently. Share about God's grace in your lives so that he might be glorified and others introduced to the only one who can give eternal life. God's grace is unconditional. It's for those who don't deserve it. His grace is also available. The the message of the gospel is meant for everyone. And God's grace is purposeful. It's meant to bring him glory in the lives of others. Finally, the last aspect of grace that we must embrace in order to have a true understanding of the gospel in this world full of folly is that God's grace is doxological. God's grace is doxological. That just means that God's grace in our lives is meant to generate praise. The truth of verse 16 causes Paul to burst into praise spontaneously in verse 17. And as he recalls God's abundant grace in his life, Paul can't help but praise him. And he he praises the king of the ages. Though Paul has been talking mostly about Jesus in the previous verses, It seems that he is turning his attention more broadly to the triune God, Father, Spirit, Son, who is eternal. The triune God is the king of the ages who has no beginning or end. God is also immortal. He is incapable of corruption. 
There's a Christian artist named Makoto Fujimura, and he's known for using gold and silver in his paintings. And in his work, God is often represented by gold. Gold is a symbol of eternal things for him in his work. Silver, on the other hand, represents humanity. And, and by using those two precious metals and, and colors, he is trying to, to convey in his art the idea that we have value as humans. And we're silver, but we aren't like God. He is gold. And we aren't gold. Like, like silver, we, we tarnish over time. But gold will continue to shine. That is the idea of God being immortal. He does not suffer corruption. And Paul praises God for immortality, and he writes that God is invisible. No one can see God. When God appeared to the Old Testament saints, it was in theophanies. He made visible appearances in a variety of ways to give people a sense of his presence and a sense of his character. And God manifested himself in the person of Christ. But no one has or can see the triune God. And God's invisibility reminds us that we have limits to our understanding. God does not. God is also the only God. And against the backdrop of Roman and Greek polytheism, Paul praises God for being the one true God. And together, this barrage of qualities in verse 17 serve to exalt God as entirely different from the gods of this world. In Ephesus, remember, they were known for housing the, the famous temple of Artemis. They were accustomed to praising Artemis. But while Artemis was a, was a fictional queen among a, a pantheon of other gods who could only be commemorated with a statue and mass-produced idols, God is the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only true God. He is transcendent, so, so far above and beyond us, yet he is also merciful. And that's what, what Paul is trying to say in these verses, right? God is the, to be praised for being the, the transcendent God of all, but Jesus came into this world to save sinners. This is a God who is worthy of honor and glory forever. It's no wonder that W. Chalmers Smith used verse 17 for the opening lyrics of his famous hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. God is to be praised for these things. And, and it was this verse that, that struck a 17-year-old named Jonathan Edwards in the spring of 1721. He would later write about this verse. As I read the words, there came into my soul... And as it were diffused through it, a sense of the glory of the divine being. A new sense, quite different from anything I had ever experienced before. Never any words of Scripture seemed to me as these words did. I, I thought with myself, how excellent a being that was. And how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God. And be wrapped up to God in heaven. And be, as it were, swallowed up in him. A true understanding of, of God and his grace leads us to praise him and to worship him. Think of, of your life and all that God has done for you. Does it bring you joy? Does it make you want to praise him? 
This world is a hard place. It's hard to try to be perfect. It's hard to try to keep up with everyone else. It's no wonder that many of us struggle with mental health. But the solution to our problems is not to embrace another kind of teaching to try to get right with God as the false teachers in Ephesus did. It's not simply to take care of ourselves as the world might teach us today. The answer that we need is found in God's unconditional, His available, His purposeful, and His doxological grace. The grace of God allows us to be honest about ourselves, allows us to be honest about our, our sin, allows us to be honest about our struggles because it is not dependent upon us being worthy of receiving it. And God's saving grace is, is not some abstract thing that we have to try to figure out. It's the simple truth that Jesus came to save us from our sin. It's available to all. It is a grace that highlights the goodness and patience of God and brings us into an eternal relationship with Him, which should bring us great joy and cause us to praise Him. This is the gospel of God's grace that must be extolled. This is the gospel that must be defended. Paul's life was a testimony to that grace, and, and so are the lives of many of you today. I encourage you to lean in once again, or perhaps lean in for the first time, to the magnificent grace of God so that you might discover great and lasting joy and peace in your life. Now let's pray. O King of the Ages, we come this morning worshiping you for you indeed are immortal, invisible. You are the only God who is worthy of our praise because you have shown us such mercy in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, thank you for sending your Son to come into this world to save sinners like us. And Father, help us, humble us so that we can see that, that we are those people who really needed to be saved. We did not do anything to deserve your grace. And help us as those who have received grace to be ministers of it, to testify to your grace in this world, because this is what the world needs. This is the good news that so many people around us need. And so help us uh, to be recipients and proclaimers of the grace that you provide us in Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.